Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold. Welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 137. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar. Scroll down to Sellers and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? 
those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the Solo Monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. You can order the TTB scrapbook today at BearManorMedia.com. Currently, it is available in hardcover, but will be available in paperback and ebook soon. Also, it will be available on Amazon and other online platforms soon. I'm currently working on a Popeye article and a Dino Writers article for Back Issue magazine. And, of course, I'm still working on my Mad in Turtles books. On today's show, we have a TV historian and commentator, sports announcer, news anchor, and a professor of journalism. Here he is, Steve Beverly. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And today on the show, we have Steve Beverly. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. All right. <laughs> um, Basically, I've seen you for years on Stu's show and also on your own um, TV classics show, which for years Stu would talk about. And, I, you know, I'm very thankful to him, and I told him so, that he finally puts a feed so I can actually see your show. Right. I actually flipped it on last night just to see what was on there. It was old Room 222 episodes. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was when we were doing the tributes to uh, uh, Michael Constantine and to Ed Asner. And it was, uh, you know, it, it's it's tough sometimes doing shows because sometimes you, you don't have episodes that have lapsed in the public domain that you can use if it's a significant performer. Uh, fortunately, for most of them, there, there are. But uh, it, it's tough when you have multiple performers that leave us within the same week hmm. and and you're trying to get as much to be fair to everybody where that's concerned but it, it's it's a difficult thing sometimes but i i think we we did a reasonable job of remembering them particularly ed asner with some things other than the mary tyler moore show which we can't run uh that he did earlier in his career mm-hmm. yeah i think the one he had was route 66 and mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what to expect. I'd, I've only seen a handful of those episodes over the years. Um, and I, I found it a very odd episode to also have Darren McGavin on it as well, yeah. you know, as the fighter. And I said, well, okay, I guess it kind of works, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and Ed Asner playing the fight manager. Yeah. Uh, it was almost for a little bit an adaptation of Requiem for a Heavyweight that was done on Playhouse 90 back in the 50s and, of course, was made into a movie. But uh, it was it was really interesting to see him in that role where, you know, he had to, it, for all intents and purposes, tell his fighter he was washed up. Right. And pretty much the same, you know, it, there, there were some variations in it, but it was still a lot like the kinds of, of movies or TV series episodes that we've seen in the past about uh, a washed up fighter. And then, of course, we had an episode of him uh, playing the $10,000 pyramid, much uh, right in the, during the first year of the show. And, 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 you know, when you, when you look at the, the gamut of everything. What I try to do when somebody passes away is to use 
an unconventional show, maybe that people have never seen before because they're so familiar with the body of work. I mean, Ed Asner is Lou Grant. Right. And everybody is so familiar with that body of work, but not necessarily as much as they were uh, of his work in that dates back to the 50s. I mean, if you look at it, he was he was in a small role, but he was in the uh, Studio One episode, The Night America Trembled, which was the one in which they recreated what Orson Welles did the night he did the War of the Worlds on radio. And Ed was part of the crew that was working on that, and that was his role in the episode. So he only had maybe about three speaking lines. And then, ironically, uh, at the very tail end of Studio One, they did a two-parter that was the precursor of a show that won a lot of awards and was a controversial courtroom show back in 1961, ran for four years, The Defenders, except instead of E.G. Marshall and Robert Reed in the roles, it was Ralph Bellamy and uh, William Shatner playing a father and son attorney. And Ed had no speaking role in it, but every time they panned the jury, he's right there in the middle of the jury. Well, he's very distinctive looking. I mean, it's like when I was watching Route 66, I didn't know where he was going to pop up because I'd never seen the episode. But yeah. I think he speaks before he's shown. And it's like, oh, there he is, you know, and then he turns around <laughs> and you see his face. And it's like, he basically looks the same, except he had a little more hair. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, just slightly more. It was, it was, shall we say, uh, as as my weathercaster used to say in Spartanburg, South Carolina, when a storm, uh, when a, a severe thunderstorm was approaching, things are deteriorating rapidly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, we started off with that because you know it's the one, the couple things I'm most familiar with. But uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is Stu always has you on the show, just paired up with Wesley Hyatt. But you mm-hmm. just talk about what's currently on the TV or like you're saying, who's passed away. I know a bit about you personally, only from the standpoint of what you've volunteered to say on the show, but I'm just kind of curious a little more about that. I know you've been an sure. professor. I know you have all these things. I don't know if you've ever written any books. I mean, part of the reason I had Wesley on the show, on my show a couple of times, mm-hmm. is he's written the Betty White book. He wrote a, 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 a Julie Wes has written every book I wanted to write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess what I usually start with is just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in uh, this thing called television, because that's basically the connecting tissue for everything you've done, it seems like. My parents said that I was watching television from the crib. <laughs> and they were probably right. <laughs> I grew up in the 50s in Columbus, Georgia. I look it, so <laughs> that's where it is. But I grew up in the 50s in Columbus, Georgia, and I have as close to a vivid memory as you can have uh, of being three years old. And the only show that I was allowed to sit up past 830 or 9 o'clock at night to watch was the $64,000 question. <laughs> And the reason for that is because in that era, when the East went on, when, when New York went on daylight savings time, all of the shows that most all the other states that were not on daylight time, it was the equivalent of being on central time because they didn't have two separate feeds. 
So what would happen is uh, prime time would end for most of the, it, during those daylight savings times months for New York, uh, uh, prime time would end at 10 o'clock. So the $64,000 question, it was a 10 o'clock show in the East and in the Pacific. It was a nine o'clock show during the spring and summer months uh, until they could get a separate feed. Uh, around 1959 uh, is when that happened. So uh, I was allowed to sit up and watch it, and I was absolutely mesmerized. I <laughs> thought Hal March was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I, I loved all of the drama, and and I think one of the things that I connected with is that there was a a 10-year-old named Robert Strum who was an absolute mathematical whiz, and he went into that isolation booth, and in fact, he was so good that they let him run the gauntlet three times. And so he won $192,000 because he was money in the bank. That is what hooked me into television. And then uh, I was, my family lived in Columbus, Georgia. So I began to be a fan of local television before I started the school. And my icons were uh, a guy named uh, Glenn Broman, who was the, uh, before the term was used, was the news anchor man for WRBL in Columbus. And he had a reputation that when he walked into a city council meeting and he had his camera and started setting it up, everything stopped <laughs> because he had that kind of pull in Columbus, Georgia. But all of the local icons for me uh, were the ones who were on WRBL because the other station was a UHF and had not really caught up to them. And, and so that turned out to be when I graduated from the University of Georgia. That was the first TV station I went to work for. They had a job open. They posted it on the board at, at uh, the University of Georgia in the placement office. I grabbed the card right off of the, uh, the bulletin board and dashed down to my major professor's office. And he had a voice that was about like Lou Grant. And, he, and, and I said, you know, here I am as, as a 21-year-old, and I'm just sort of shaking about this, that I got a possibility here. And I said, do you think I ought to go ahead and call me? And get on down there in my office. Get in there in my office right now, and you just use my 800 number and go in there and call them, and don't you come out of there until you've got an appointment. <laughs> and so I did. I, uh, I did, and I, I, I drove over about three days later for an interview, and then I was hired. And so I got some of the pioneers that started when television first came to Columbus in 1953 were still at the station. So for me, it was a chance to sit in the mornings for coffee or at other times when they were around that I could just drink in from them because they wrote the rules of local television when there were no rules. Right. And they readily told me, several of them said, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea. We just, we, we made it up as we went along. And that was true all over the country. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was really my connection is, is when I was three years old, that happened. And I, I, I just became, I, I think I was a TV historian by the time I was six years old. I read TV guide cover to cover to cover every week when it came out. <laughs> Uh, so that that for me is what got me involved. And, and I knew I was going to be in broadcasting in some form or another. I just didn't know what uh, as a kid. Now, when you got hired there, what was your job? Just gopher or something? Or did you no, I was I, I, I went right to work uh, 10 days after I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976. I was a, a weekday reporter oh, and, wow. the, and the <laughs> Sunday night uh, co-anchor. 
uh, with a guy named Jack Kendrick. Uh, we did the Sunday evening 6.30 news together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I went right in, and my my first weekend I was uh, co-anchoring. The way it worked in those in that era in a, a medium and small market is that uh, you had a, a the skeleton of skeleton crews. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I hear when somebody says we got six people on the weekend, we got a skeleton crew, I, I laugh and I'll, I'll just say, well, think about what a real skeleton crew was when it was Jack and me. <laughs> And, and uh, they did bring in someone to process film for us, make one film run about an hour and a half before we went on the air, uh, if we went out and shot, but we had to shoot our own local stories. We had to, on the air, we divided up the news copy and then Jack did the weather, I did the sports. Mm -hmm. And that's the way weekend news was done in, in a lot of small to medium market cities is that you did everything. It was a terrific learning experience because you knew that when that thing was over with at seven o'clock, your name was on it, you signed it, and, and it was a, a product that, whether it was good, mediocre, or bad, that it was yours. And, and so it, it, that was a huge learning experience. And so, I, yeah, I started right off in that, and it was, it was a huge amount of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've kind of lived through it vicariously through my dad. My dad's in his 80s now, but Mm -hmm. uh, he, he got a job right out of high school working at a Bakersfield, California station, mm -hmm. and he ran camera, and he was pretty much the guy. I mean, he ran camera mm -hmm. for everything, you know, so it was the cooking yeah. show. You know, it's like the ladies in front of him uh, mm -hmm. uh, making the thing, and here's the cake, you know. Next show. Okay, it's the news. Well, you got the reporter, and he's the camera guy. Next show. That's it's right. The show. He's in front of, <laughs> you know, and my dad would just do them all in a row. You know, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and Mark, the kind of thing today is as more and more stations go to robotic cameras, you're not going to have those kinds of stories anymore that they can tell about what it was like at the beginning and where you literally did everything. And you might be the only camera operator. And if you had a two or a three camera setup, is that you might have been going from one camera to another the entire time. And during a commercial break, you'd reset it over on the sports guy or you'd reset it over on the weather. Uh, it, it, oftentimes, you had two minutes to get everything in position. And, and, and oftentimes, it was one person who was doing it. <laughs> now, when you were on the station uh, being a reporter, um, obviously, like I said, you became a professor later. So were you studying to become that or was that something far off in the future? And you no, just said, I'm I, just going to do this for now or what? <laughs> yeah, I, I really envisioned initially, my, my, my first real goal was I wanted to do sports because <laughs> I did uh, in my high school and college years, I did play-by-play -play sports for six years. And I a lot of high school and a little bit of college, but mostly high school. And I really wanted to do sports. But uh, what happened is that when I was at the University of Georgia, uh, we got involved in an investigative news report in, in my senior class. We got involved in an investigative news report about the irregularities in the student judiciary at the University of Georgia. And just to make it very, very brief as to what that is, student judiciary was a group of student law, they were law students, 
and they literally had a judiciary where you went, if you were a student and you had been hauled in on some kind of violation, you pleaded your case before them and the judiciary had the final say-so as to what your punishment was going to be, or will they throw it out? And we came to find out that they were doing some things that were uh, absolutely incorrect. That was violations of the Sunshine Law in the state of Georgia, because at will, they would decide they would just close the hearing and keep everybody out. A lot of things like that. And so we documented uh, a, a notebook full of things and it ran. So our, we did a documentary, a half hour documentary. It, it was in the day when radio stations had a much greater commitment to news <laughs> and they would do radio documentaries at that point in time. And so uh, WNGC, which was uh, a station that was populated almost exclusively by University of Georgia graduates, uh, they agreed to run the documentary. And uh, we won some awards for it. And so my professor, Bill Martin, rest his soul, and, and he came up to me and said, I know you want to do sports. And, and, and you can do sports. Yeah, you can be a fine sportscaster. But I got to tell you, after you doing this report and doing this documentary, I got to tell you, 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 you'd really be a fantastic newsman. I wouldn't turn that down. <laughs> so consequently, what happened is when I had the chance to go to WRBL and the opportunity that on Sunday nights I could do sports, uh, as well as being a news reporter during the rest of the week, uh, that was the real appeal to me. But I really thought that I would make my career exclusively doing that. And uh, 19 years later, and after I had been news director in three different cities. Uh, 19 years later, an opportunity came open in Jackson, Tennessee at Union University to be uh, the broadcasting professor. And they appealed to me with the fact that they felt that it was essential for them to have someone who was not just a degreed person, but who had experience in the field because they wanted to have their students taught by somebody who had been there, not just teaching it out of a textbook. Mm. And so they convinced me they were serious. And 29 years later, well, 28 years later, they still had me around until I retired in, uh, in August. But that was, that was, you know, I really thought I would stay with news for a long period of time, but I found a tremendous calling in becoming a broadcast media educator, plus the fact that when I took the job, one of the things that was happening at that point in time was an opportunity to actually go back into becoming a sportscaster again. And I was asked to become executive producer and play-by-play uh, -play commentator for Union University basketball for both men and women, and both of them had very successful programs. So uh, for me, it was a chance to live out my dream of being a regular sportscaster at the college level, but at the same point in time, uh, getting a great joy watching young people do what I had done at that point in time, do what I had done almost 20 years earlier. And so uh, that, that was a, sort of a circuitous route for, for me to, to do what I did. Mm -hmm. Now, I was doing a little research on that, and I I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned I want to be a sportscaster and you're kind of jumping ahead. 
And then, but then you, know, you mentioned the basketball career, but I found some article that said like your first broadcast or first few were, let's say not so good. <laughs> Is that correct? <laughs> you, you hit it right on the head. Uh, <laughs> now, why yeah, was that? Is it just well, nervousness you, of getting your goal or? <laughs> no, it was not. It, it was not nerves. I don't know that I can ever say. And some people, you know, and that's fine if they are because it's natural. But I don't know that I can ever say, Mark, that I, w- I have ever been nervous in front of a microphone. It has been about as natural to me as eating scrambled eggs in the morning. Uh, I don't do that too often anymore. But, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was really very comfortable. But it was a, somewhat of a fluke thing as to why I ended up in the role. What had happened, and I'll make this story very short, what happened is that uh, the man who was, the job opened at Union University because the man who was my predecessor, unfortunately, uh, was told that his contract was not going to be renewed. And we won't go into reasons for that because it's not really important to to your viewers. But it's, uh, and, and I felt bad for him because I knew the man. Uh, I, I did. And I had no idea at the time that he was told his contract was not going to be renewed, that, that I was going to be even considered for the replacement. I mean, I hadn't even applied for the job. <laughs> and so what happened is uh, he had just been told about, I'm going to say 10 days prior to this, that he wasn't going to be renewed. And so he made a probably very unwise decision on his part professionally that uh, he was going to quit meeting with his classes virtually immediately. And he literally walked out on his job and he produced the basketball telecast. He did not do the play by play. His brother-in-law did. And so in an act of solidarity with the brother-in-law, the brother-in-law that did the play by play, uh, he said that he would no longer do Union University basketball because of how his brother-in-law had been treated. So I get a call on a Tuesday morning from the athletic director and a wonderful guy named David Blackstock, who uh, left us four years ago. But David had one of these voices that sounded like Mr. Haney on Green Acres. <laughs> and he calls me up and he says, Steve, we need some help. And I said, well, what can I do for you, David? He said, well, we need somebody to broadcast our game tonight. And I said, are you talking radio or television? No, we're talking television. We, we, we badly need somebody because uh, our, our man has just walked out on us. And, and I said, well, David, I said, I have done basketball before, but I said, it has been 17 years since I called a game. And I said, I'm, I'm not sure that I really feel like I'm the guy that I'll be doing this because it's been so long. He says, well, you've done them before, haven't you? And I said, yeah, but it was 17 years ago. Then you're well qualified. <laughs> so he put the Mr. Haney sales pitch on me. I didn't have to pay anything. In fact, he paid me. But I, I ended up uh, doing the game. It was a, a local uh, inner city rivalry against Lambeth University that was the most heated rival for Union. And I did the game, and then I went home and watched it. We were on public television at the time, and it was on a same-night tape delay. We weren't live. 
And I went home and watched the game that night, and I thought, oh, my gosh, they're never going to have me back for a second game. I was calling radio play-by-play on television. I was calling every movement of the ball. It sounded – you could have turned your back, and you would have thought it was a radio game. Uh, In fact, some guy told me, he said, that was the best radio play-by-play I've ever seen on television. (laughs) And and I really did. I thought I would not be back, but they had me. Fortunately, they were a forgiving set of souls, and they had me to fill out the season uh, because there was still about a month and a half to go. And from that point on, uh, I ended up until I retired from it uh, 25 years later, uh, after doing nearly 900 games and, on television over the years. And I also had, during that period, I became the voice uh, for the te- uh, television coverage of the NAIA Women's National Basketball Championship, which that's the really smaller schools that are not NCAA, but are NAIA. And I, I did that for 13 years. Uh, and so consequently, uh, I, I retired mainly because I really wanted to, I knew my own retirement was coming up as a professor and I wanted to give, I I'd really reached a point where I had two young guys that were my students who really needed the work mm-hmm. and that I felt like it would be a springboard for them to, to have a career in television sports. If they could do the games for a couple of years, they did. And they both did get jobs immediately after graduation. And I'm proud of very bo- uh, proud of both of them for what they've been doing. But uh, now uh, this season, now that I'm retired as a professor, they uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and so I'm back out of retirement again. I am I'm I am permanently retired as a professor, but I'm back in the broadcast. Booth. Oh wow, I didn't even know that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So you're doing basketball only, or I'm doing something? basketball and volleyball. So, oh wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I volleyball is a sport I, that I've done very little of, but I've followed it very closely, uh, particularly at the Olympics. And uh, so they said, is there a chance we could get you to do volleyball as well as basketball for us this year? Because they're <laughs> they're moving into a, a new streaming network uh, that they're going to be part of. And I and they wanted to have a veteran announcer. And I, and I said, yeah, I think I can. I said, I just I've got to brush up on a couple of things with the uh, uh, with the positions. Mm-hmm. But I said, I think I can do it. And, I, and, and so I have and I have thoroughly enjoyed doing women's volleyball because uh, it has been such a relaxing sport. Now, they get out there and they, and they get their kills and they start going down about 50 miles an hour at a 45 degree angle. I'm getting out of the way of that thing. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it's, you know, that has been uh, a, a great fun for me and getting to know the team. And it was uh, and we the other thing that's been kind of fun is that we haven't lost on any television game so far. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, but then, but then uh, uh, basketball started last weekend. And so I'm, I'm in for the whole season. And so I'm, I'm back in, as Gene Autry would say, I'm back in the saddle again. Now, I, I assume, you know, you love doing it. Otherwise you'd yeah. give a pass on it. So, you know, the, the that's really cool. Yeah. The check is nice when it clears the bank. Oh, yeah, of course. But, I mean, it's like you have to have some sort of love for it besides just money, I would think. Yeah, you you do. I mean, particularly what I love about it at this level is that the athletes are very accessible. Uh, They're not the subject of the kind of scrutiny that Division I athletes get. And there's still a purity about uh, the way the game is played. 
that I thoroughly enjoy. There's uh, these these kids very much are part of the student environment, and particularly the the young women on the volleyball team. Uh, they are very popular within the student body, and so uh, in in a case like this, uh, I I enjoyed it at the Division II level because a lot of these kids are here because they want to be here, not because they're out to get the best offer. Uh, virtually none of them are going to go into professional sports, and most of them have career goals mm-hmm. and are majoring thing in things to now. And some of them might be athletically related. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's just really a joy because I I get to know these kids so much better than I would be if I was uh, doing this with a Division I school. Now, when you do a show, obviously, I haven't heard your shows. Do you just do the play-by-play or do you actually go into the locker room or on the court after the game and interview the players and do the whole thing there um, and make – Actually, actually what I do is is I do all of my pregame work like I did today. Uh, three different Zoom interviews because this weekend, I told you before we went on, is that this weekend on uh, Thursday night, I have a uh, volleyball game. And then Friday, I have a volleyball basketball double header. And then Saturday, then I've got a men's basketball, just a single game men's basketball that day. So I've got four games in three days. And uh, so today I spent a lot of my time doing Zoom interviews with players and coaches. And all of that has been edited together so that we can drop those things in in either pregame shows or uh, uh, for basketball at halftime. And then uh, to have an opportunity, we've been doing a lot of player interviews uh, with volleyball. And so we uh, have really been trying to make these very conversational, up close and personal so that the viewers can have an opportunity to see and hear more about these players. And and fortunately, the ones that we have in volleyball are so energetic and personable. They're very telegenic. And and so it's been, you know, very easy interviews to be able to do. And and so because of that, uh, I usually will take the better part of a day and do my interviews if I've got a block of games coming up uh, because it's just very hard to be able to do that. Uh, And then, you know, if it, if it's something like if we had a real thriller, then, you know, I'd go down on the floor and do a post game uh, like that. If it's, if it's more of a conventional game, we just wrap it up from the booth. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of curious because, you know, some Mm -hmm. people on strictly this or, you know, you do, the man of all trades and do everything. So you know, it's like, when you, when you do division two basketball, it's more like that. You, you do a little yeah. bit more of everything. I figured, but yeah. <laughs> always ask, you know, notice. Yeah. Um, now more, you know, back to uh, being a professor um, mm-hmm. during all this time, I think you said before, or I read it in one of the articles, um, most of the time you were just teaching journalism, basically. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. You know, so you mm-hmm. didn't, uh, like teach sports announcing, for example, even if you were doing it. Is that correct? No, we didn't. We did not have a class in sports announcing. Okay. Uh, what we what I did is and it took me I, I'll be candid with you. It took me 15 years to get it really to the point that I wanted to because you know, we had to wait for fiber optics technology to be able to get to our building so that we could go live out of it. Uh, and, and the same thing was true from the uh, from the arena on campus. Uh, we had to wait 
until it was 2004 before we could do a basketball game live. Uh, and, and we were doing it on tape delay up until that point. But uh, what we did is that I eventually, because I felt like over the years that the best training uh, that I had at the University of Georgia was uh, we couldn't do a daily newscast because it was just not practical at the time, but we did a weekly newscast that was called This Week in North Georgia that was distributed at the time on weekends to about 25 cable systems in North Georgia. So we were all getting valuable experience doing that. And so I've tried, uh, we did everything that we could to get it to the point that we could do live. And then finally in 2008, we began to do a daily newscast at noon every day live called Jackson 24-7. It was a half hour newscast and it was all student produced and student anchored, supervised by me. Mm -hmm. uh, but we began to literally operate like a TV newsroom. Uh, and that's how we did everything. But at the same time, I was also doing during the season, I was doing basketball. And so I, I probably over the years worked with 40 different students as as color commentators. And then there would be certain designated games during the season that I would do color and let them do play by play so they could get experience in that. So it was a uh, that they literally learned on the job, but some of our best teaching of that really came at the NAIA tournament because that tournament was one that is not done like the NCAA tournament where it's spread out over uh, three, four weekends. The NAIA tournament is, is a 32-team tournament that is done in a week. It's 31 games in one week. And so... <laughs> There's no human being that could call 31 games in one weekend. I mean, the voice would not hold up. Right. But and trust me, I did. I did 18 games one year, and I said I'll never do that again. But what what we did is that I gave the students as many assignments as they were willing to take during that tournament because we had uh, we did all of the production as well as the uh, on air work. And so when you're, when you're doing that, it also, I think, made these students, I gave them all of the assignments that they could possibly take during the course of that week. And I think it also made them and me better announcers because we had to do a neutral call even when Union University was playing. There, there's none of this. We would have gotten in all kinds of trouble if we had played the Homer route in doing that. And so from all of those 13 years of doing that tournament, uh, I, I've had student after student that went into the field professionally, and they told me over and over again that that experience was the best that they had in doing sports because they learned how to do a balanced sports cast. Yeah. And we basically adopted that philosophy for union games as well during the regular season. Uh, we finally, and I, I met with all of them, and I said, look, I want us to eliminate personal pronouns. I don't want us to talk about we, our, us, anything like that. I said, we, we need to eliminate the Homer route with this because I said, then when we go to the national tournament, uh, we are prepared to call that kind of game when Union is out on the floor. 
and so that's what we've tried to do and and so that's that was really our training training ground we it was probably the best training laboratory that students had we would look back at the games uh the next day uh, i'd take enough time we wouldn't watch the whole game but i would look at certain things and i might even be making notes during the game and we look back at it and let them have an opportunity to see some of the mistakes they made and, and how they might have made a better observation here or there. Uh, but it was great on-the-job training for them. And so uh, I, I'm, I, I estimate we probably have two dozen people that are still working in some form of sports media that uh, worked with me on those games all, all during those years. Now, was that a, ever a struggle, uh, like, for people to keep their personal biases, particularly for the home team, as it were, um, on that. And then the second part of this, because I know you're teaching journalism, uh, I know journalism is notorious nowadays for editorializing and uh, things like that. Uh, was that a struggle for you there, for your students, to keep them from editorializing on things? Well, let's put it this way. If they made those kinds of mistakes, it was from inexperience, uh, not because it was by intent. Right. Uh, when it came to the first part of your question, when you were talking about was it a struggle for them during a sports cast to do that? Yeah, it, it, it was to begin with. But we would sit them down before and we would sit down all of the sports casters because there were some years I had as many as seven people that I was rotating on different games to call and they had a rotation they knew when they would call if they weren't on the air they'd be doing the production mm -hmm. uh, some of them actually may even be in the truck directing the games mm -hmm. and so what we tried to do is to make them understand before they ever went out there that we're trying to do a balanced sports cast and the other thing is that i tried to make them understand is that we knew because in even as late as the the double o's we were one of the few schools in our conference that had television coverage and it was a great commitment that union had made and so uh we let them know that we were very well aware that there were some of our opponents or, or some of, there were some people in jackson that would actually send tapes of our games to some of our opponents if they happen to be alums of those schools. Mm. And I let them know very quickly, I said, the worst thing that you could possibly do is to go on the air and be critical of officials' calls or be critical of that team. And suddenly they see this and hear it when they get a tape of those games and that just fires them up when they come on the floor. Mm. So I, I said, here's the deal is I said, you just be as you bend over backwards to be positive about their players. And when they they do well on the floor, salute them for it, single out their players. Let everybody know that you are a positive, balanced sportscaster. And I said, and we won't have that kind of guilt on our hands that we just went on on our telecast and trashed them. <laughs> and, and so I, I, most of them really understood. And, and, and the, the ones that I, I have that have really succeeded in sports broadcasting and sports media have told me that doing it that way really prepared them for what is expected of them uh, in the field. Now, to part two of your question mm -hmm. about, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we have a, a real cancer, and I don't know that we're going to go back to it. it. It was 15 years ago that <laughs> Ted Koppel predicted 
Ted Koppel said, we are in an era of partisan journalism, and I'm afraid we're not going to go back to where we are. And, and I, I tend to agree with Ted. I don't think that we're going to go back to that. Uh, but I tried to teach students a classic form of broadcast journalism, that you get the facts and you report the facts as fair and as balanced as you possibly can, and that if there is any editorializing or commentary to be done, it is to be done as a commentary that is clearly labeled to the viewers with the words commentary that stays there for the entire time of that. That way, it's just like if it was an editorial on the editorial page of a newspaper. Uh, you are letting the viewers know, okay, this is what either I think or what our entity thinks at that point. And, and there, unfortunately, not enough broadcast entities today that will have management produced editorials, which I think can be very valuable for communities to advance and to, to have a community agenda of problems that need to be addressed, but not in the bounds of uh, conventional reporting. It just has no business there, but unfortunately we've got this, and, and I mean, I watched, I, I've almost got to the point, I can't watch network news, but I happened to be in the room tonight when one of the network newscasts were, were on, and they, they all have to go live for 15 seconds to the correspondent wherever they are, which that doesn't really help anybody's comprehension of the story. It just tells everybody we're live there. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, I, and this was a network correspondent, and in, in about half of them, it was more analysis and, and short burst commentary on that story rather than leaving it alone with the way the report was done. No, we've got to have, to have this tack on the bulletin board at the end. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. And I, and I told them, I said, listen, some of you are going to probably go to work for some broadcast entities uh, at some point in time that, to be candid with you, are going to expect that out of you. And then you have to make a decision for yourself. If, is this what I want to do? I said, you can find places that you can, you can work in a traditional fashion and, and it's accepted. But I said, the bigger you go, the harder that's going to be. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a very difficult problem that we deal with in in what this field of journalism that I entered back in 1976. Right. I mean, I, I took journalism uh, in uh, high school, and that was like the first thing they said. It's like, leave your own opinions out of it, you know, was basically at the door. It. You know, it's like the story will tell itself, and you just tell the facts. And you know, back then it made more sense because we're talking early 80s and Cronkite mm -hmm. was still on, who yeah. generally never editorialized unless he said something about President Johnson and Vietnam War, mm -hmm. or like when we landed on the moon, he just says, oh, you know, well, stuff Mark, like yeah, that. Mark, but I mean, yeah, that's not, that wasn't normal for him. That was just, you know, you know, an occasional thing, not every single time. It's like, well, that yeah. really sucks that this happened today. In the yeah, news. yeah, <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, that's where we're at, in, in, in particularly on cable news. Uh, yeah. I, I, have yeah. I have labeled primetime cable news yell TV because that's what it is. Just let's see how much we can yell what we yeah. think at each other. But, you know, Mark, it, sometimes it's very subtle things that you have to work with with students. 
Uh, and we were doing our Monday edition of Jackson 24-7 was, was called College News Conference, in which it was an adaptation of uh, an old format that was done in the 50s on ABC. And, and so we brought in uh, senior students, including one of our own, but we brought in three senior students. Two of them were from other colleges or universities in our community to, on Mondays, have a live news conference in the studio with a major local figure. Mm-hmm. And so one day our mayor was on, and so he was making an observation about one of the questions. And sadly, it was one of my students who responded at the end of it. They had two questions in a row before it would go to the next person. Mm-hmm. And so before she asked her second question, she said, I agree. And I'm in the control room nearly melting down when, when that happened. And so after the show was over, I said, I want you to see something. Come here. And I ran the tape and I said, okay, do you sense anything that you said here that you shouldn't have said? And she didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And I said, when you're doing any kind of interview, and especially a political interview, you never express agreement or disagreement with that person. Yes, you can ask a devil's advocate question, but you never say, I agree or I disagree uh, to that person. And it was a case of immaturity on her part. Uh, She didn't recognize what she had said at that Mm. point. So sometimes you have to be very, very diligent to take a student, because you got to remember, even if they're 22, they're not mature at that point in time. And you've got to, you've got to really be diligent to point this out to them. Because if you send them out into the world and they start doing stuff like that, they'll say, well, what kind of teacher did you have? (laughs) Uh, And that's, you know, it it, it is, it does happen. And and so you have to be very, very caught. And even sometimes to the point that I really worked with them not to nod their heads, even in a feature interview with someone not to go like this <laughs> when, when they were responding to an answer, because I right. said, if you nod your head a certain way, it's going to signify an agreement or disagreement yeah. with yeah. you on that. And so, uh, you know, those are the subtle things that you really have to work with college students because they're not quite mature yet to be able to know how to do this totally as a professional. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on from that, I mean, uh, but, well, I think you answered this already, but as far as retirement goes, uh, you just felt you wanted to give other people opportunity more than, like, could you have continued on being a professor if you felt like it, uh, but you wanted to give other people oh, yeah. the opportunity? Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, when I, I, I went in and talked to my dean uh, three years earlier, And we knew that, you know, I was getting to the age where, and particularly when you run a college program like a television news department, uh, it can take a lot out of you because you've got your students four to five hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. So to do it in that fashion and to have things prepared for them to be able to come in and do a daily half hour newscast. Uh, you know, we had to expand it into a lab where they were in there from 11 to 12:45 every day. And then the other thing is, is that uh, you just have you, your prep time as a prof 
doing things that way. And I did it that way because I felt like it better prepared them professionally. Uh, but it takes a lot out of you. And your my prep time was probably two and a half times to three what the average professor's daily prof uh, prep time was. And, and I'm not taking anything away from somebody who teaches history or English or anything like that, but there's a basic set of preps. And in some instances that they may have been following for years yeah. uh, with, with only minor variations. And so when they finish one day's lecture, and then if it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, and they finish Monday's class, they pretty well know what they're going to do on Wednesday. Uh, at that point. But for us, if it's something dealing with news that changes every day, oh, yeah. it's not a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, and we tried to make it as realistic a session as possible. But I went to my dean and I said, uh, you know, we're getting to the point now that we got to think about when I'm going to draw the line on this thing. And he <laughs> and I said, he said, when do you think you'd like to do it? And I said, well, three more years. Mm. And he looked at me and he said, would you consider making it four? Mm. And I said, nope. I said, it's three. And I said, I'm going to tell you why, because if you talk me into four, I said, then at the end of four, you're going to come back and ask me for five. <laughs> and I said, I would rather let's have an agreement so that the department can be prepared well enough in advance to make the transition to a new person or in whatever direction they want to take it. I said, you may have you may hire somebody who doesn't want to do it the way I did it, and that's perfectly fine. But uh, I, I said, I think it is very important that there's an orderly transition to this. And so we agreed on three years. And so uh, when it came to the end of August, and there, there was one last, there was one last uh, flyer that went by, says, any chance you'd think about one more year? Nope. <laughs> nope. I'm, I'm ready. The time, as Ricky Ricardo said, the night that little Ricky was born, the time has come. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I uh, uh, and it was a it was a very, very friendly. I, I don't know of a human being. That could have had a greater final month than I did at Union University, uh, the kind of accolades that I received and in just the the send off was more than I ever dreamed and was, you know, it was almost overwhelming at times. But uh, for me, it was certainly something that at my age now, I will never forget uh, how I was able to go out on my own terms, but how they were to me in making it just a, an absolute fabulous uh, final year, particularly final two months. I always tell people, um, when I've stopped doing things, I would say, I'd rather go out like Carson than Leno. Yeah. <laughs> if they know, they know it, if they get it, they'll know it. You know, it's like, you know, exactly. You know, yeah. And I, and if you clean you break, it, you're done. Don't come mm -hmm. back. Don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I was there about the length of time that Johnny did the tonight show. And yeah. so, <laughs> and it was, it, it but I mean, it, there was everything from, uh, you know, I had two of the, the most incredible uh, retirement banquets that you could ever possibly hope to have. And then uh, an induction into the Union University Sports Hall of Fame, 
I never thought I would be in anything but a hole of shame, but, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you know, to, to be honored for the years as a broadcaster uh, for that, it's just, it was beyond my wildest expectation uh, that that would happen. And so uh, you could not under any stretch of the imagination have had a better wind up than what I was able to have. And so for me, it could not have been any better than what it was. Very cool. Now, the third part of your career, we haven't really talked about, except maybe at the top of the hour. Um, but um, so you've been on Stu's show for years. I don't even know how long with Wesley Hyatt making commentary on today's what's left of TV. <laughs> I say real well, That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the big editorials that Wes usually does about NBC and all the different things about your predictions of what will happen on Jeopardy and everything like that. How did, I know you said you've been a fan almost all your life since age three, whatever. How did you get teamed up with Wesley? How did you get teamed up with Stu? How did that all start? I don't even know because well, I don't know your first I, appearance. <laughs> I've known Stu going back to the 80s when he first got into the uh, video business. When he first started selling, in fact, he's the first guy I knew. I think there was another company called Video Yesteryear, but Stu was really the most prolific. Uh, he was the first person I knew that sold multiple shows on one videotape, as opposed to if you bought something from Video Yesteryear, it was one show. Yeah. Uh, and and so once he and he would publish these catalogs, and I was one of his earliest customers in. We got to know each other that way, and then uh, at one point up, he called me out of nowhere, uh, just wanted to say hello, and and so consequently, uh, our relationship uh, continued from that point, and and uh, you know because I, we had a huge thing in common because he's such an amazing TV historian himself. I mean, you think about being the film archivist for Lucille Ball and her estate uh, is just an amazing opportunity that he had, which he's told that story many times about how that has happened. But then in his business, he has had a number of show business and particularly television people as his clients that he literally puts together their professional reels for them. And, and so and you look at the people that he has had in and out uh, who are some of the most significant names in classic TV that he has had as guests on his show. Uh, but our, our first face-to-face meeting was actually in 2001. He brought me out to the uh, I Love Lucy 50th anniversary convention in Burbank. And he brought me out as a consultant for uh, a live Lucy trivia show that they were having. And so when he, he brought me out for that, uh, you know, I was there for the whole weekend and it was a, it, it was a fabulous experience. That's also the first weekend that I went up to Oxnard and spent some time personally with Tom Kennedy and his brother, Jack Nars, hmm. uh, at Tom's home, uh, on the ocean. So that was one of the greatest weekends I ever had, but uh, that was Stu's in my first face-to-face meeting. Hmm. And then from that time on, Stu uh, included me in a lot of different things, and I became a guest on his, what used to be his 
internet radio show. And then when Wes started writing his books, and particularly when he wrote the Encyclopedia of Daytime Television, which for my money is still one of the greatest books that's ever been written about the medium, uh, then uh, Wes and I began to have a telephone and, and email relationship. And at that point in time, uh, we started teaming up and being the, we started being together. We, we started doing four times a year, but we were traditionally always the Thanksgiving Eve guests uh, of Stu before he went television uh, on his internet radio show. And, and so that's how that all came about. And Wes and I became great friends because of uh, initially all the books that he had written, but you know, we just talk about a lot of things at times that have nothing to do with TV because we've just become friends over the years. Stu, it, the, for the for the sometimes frenetic personality that you see with Stu, he is the kind of guy that if you needed the shirt off his back, he'd give it to you. Yeah. Uh, he, he's really that kind of guy. And so, you know, sometimes it's just his personality that comes out on the air and says, well, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> but, but he, he truly is. He, he is one of the, he, he is, he has been what I would call a true friend yeah. over the years. We don't agree a lot of times politically on things, but we are proof positive that we can differ when it comes to things like that and still be the best of friends, because unfortunately our culture has in recent years allowed this to become something that even breaks up family relationships, which I think is absolutely horrid. And, and so uh, Stu and I have just had a, a terrific relationship when it comes to just being friends. And, you know, sometimes I know when he has things that bug him personally, I try to be there for him. He's been there for me. I've been through depression three times in my life. And he is one of the first guys that would would call and say, is there anything I can do? Um, so that that's how we really began to do that was we were pretty much semi-regulars about four times a year on Stu's Internet radio show. And then when he uh, he moved to television, uh, it just, we moved right along with him and, uh, right. and we've enjoyed every minute of it. Right. <laughs> now, um, I guess we, we mentioned this up here, but it's like, I was trying to look you up and everything and he's, uh, you know, Wes has had many books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a book in you uh, uh, or has Wes written them all? <laughs> <laughs> he probably has. <laughs> I, I, th- I have a couple of ideas in mind that I really, and, and one of them I'm actually working on right now, and, and the reason I don't want to talk about it is because it's the kind of thing that if you talk about it, somebody will steal the idea right. and do it. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do have a couple of ideas in mind that I would like to do that I think particularly for classic TV buffs, uh, they would really, and, and it's, it's a different style than what some people have done in the past. It, it, it is a, a chance, it, it can probably get published. Is it a chance that it will be a big seller? Probably not. But, you know, if it was something that even just broke even that I could say I wrote it, uh, I would be very happy to do. For me, though, Mark, the, the thing that uh, I have done a lot of over the years is while Wes was writing books, 
uh, I was writing commentaries for Electronic Media Magazine, which ultimately became TV Week. Mm -hmm. And it basically all started when I was asked about the situation that involved uh, when uh, the space shuttle back in the early double O's had a, a crash. And I remembered about uh, when space shuttle Challenger uh, killed the astronauts, including the school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. And that day, it, that all broke about noon that day. And that day we had probably more than 600 calls to our newsroom at uh, WWAY in Wilmington, North Carolina, from some of the most callous people that I have ever talked to in my life and that my staff has ever talked to. They were just one right after another. And it was people that were upset that they couldn't see all my children, one life to live or general hospital that day. And they thought that we could magically produce those shows when ABC was going wall to wall with news coverage and, and NASA did not declare officially that all the astronauts were gone. And I mean, most of us knew there was just no way, but they, they didn't make a final declaration until five o'clock that afternoon. And I mean, I had an assignment editor in that newsroom that was just rock. She was the rock of Gibraltar. And it's the only time that while she was working for me that I ever saw her break down in tears. And it finally happened with about the sixth call in a row from somebody who was spouting profanities and just, you know, completely callous to what was going on uh, with the loss of these people's lives. And, and so when we had the second tragedy with, the, uh, with a different space show, uh, I wrote a, a, a perspective piece, an op-ed piece for electronic media called The Viewer Doesn't Always Get It Right. <laughs> and I mentioned, uh, I'd really detailed what had happened in 1986. And then I went to a point where I said, even on the week that we all were in shock about what happened uh, at the Twin Towers in at 9-11. Mm -hmm. I had people who were contacting me that were mad that they couldn't see the prices right mm -hmm. for four days because of that. And, and so it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing study on that. So from that point, after I wrote that op-ed piece, they started calling me on a regular basis mm -hmm to write pieces to address issues, which I did. And then I became pretty much the regular columnist when we had personalities in uh, classic television who passed away, everybody from Buddy Ebsen to John Forsyth, Mike Douglas. When we lost them, I would write tribute pieces in uh, TV Week magazine. So uh, whereas uh, Wes has done, uh, and, and I'm a fan of every one of the books that he's written, uh, I focused more on doing these kinds of things because at that point in time, it was very helpful to me when it came time for promotions academically that I'd had these things published in a national journal. And, uh, and so consequently, uh, that's what I focused on. I'm surprised you didn't write a textbook for your classes only because um, I took broadcasting uh, and got a degree in it over at uh, San Francisco State. And it seemed like every professor I had 
had their own textbook for the syllabus. <laughs> I was like, yeah. here's my book. It's almost like, wow, you're, you're profiteering off the, <laughs> your yeah. teaching career, aren't you? You know, but I never said that. I just thought that. At the time. <laughs> yeah, and I never did that. I, I thought about it at one point. I never did that because I felt like what we were doing is in literally running it like a TV newsroom, that was education enough for them because we didn't actually have a textbook. I had a manual that I developed for them on how to do Jackson 24 mm seven -hmm. and, and how it should focus on the different segments every day. But I, I, I didn't write my own textbook. Now, if there is one, I will talk about that is in my head to do, it would be something I, I would not mind writing a, a book that has a working title of things my journalism class didn't teach me. And the reason I say that is because, okay, you learn the fundamentals and you learn the mechanics, but there are a lot of things that it doesn't teach you, such as how do you handle the first call that you get from an angry and antagonistic viewer that they're not going to listen to you when you try to defend yourself and they are just angry about a report that you did, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you handle that? There's not any textbook that tells you how to do that. Uh, you know, particularly, how do you deal with a difficult boss? There are, you know, the, the term today is toxic work environment is, has become the, the catchphrase. But I, I went through at least one of those in television news. And, and I, I can tell you, it was not pretty. Uh, I, and I've openly said many times uh, that when I was working on my graduate degree at Auburn University, I was also working for the university uh, as the head of broadcasting for University of Relations. And the boss I had created a terrible toxic work environment uh, and to the point that I had to take him to human resources uh, because of, of his mistreatment. Uh, they're out there. But how do you handle that when you face that? Because, you know, there's a lot of times that you'll go in and interview with somebody and they'll say all the right things and they'll seem like they've got a great sense of humor and then they're a terrible human being. Um, how do you deal with those kinds of things? And, and to me, I think it would be a very valuable thing for young people between the ages of 18 and 25. That's not necessarily a college textbook, but it, it opens up. Okay. This is what you're going to face yeah. when you're out there. Uh, and you got to be prepared for that because it's not all just fun and games. Right. Because yeah, it is absolutely true because, um, uh, I, I slowly am revealing things about me that you probably don't know. So that's why I have to tell you this in order, you know, but going to San Francisco state and learning how to do everything uh, for TV and radio and other things like that prepared me to a certain extent. Then I finally got a job at KBHK TV 44 in San Francisco, worked there for mm -hmm. five years. And I was doing different behind-the-scenes jobs over those years. I worked in the research department and the promotion department. But it was like almost like the school didn't really teach me anything, <laughs> you yeah. know, almost, you know. And it's like, I mean, in fact, the only continuity was it was television. Other than that, it's like, 
Well, you don't have these different personalities that they tell you about. It seems like in college, everybody seems to be like on the same team and cooperative for the most part, you know, yeah. but once you get into the work environment, at least back then, you know, it's like lots of competitiveness, lots of backstabbing, lots of weird stuff you don't even anticipate. And then I was in the promotion department, the person that fielded the calls to for a lot of things back then. And, you know, it would be invariably if a, if a show was moved around, like you said, or, you know, <laughs> canceled or, you know, it's like, you know, the, the, you know the, the two top ones, if they preempted it for whatever reason, were Star Trek Next Generation or Rush Limbaugh. You know, if those were moved or preempted or even cut off by a few minutes for whatever reason, I go, I'd be watching the show Star Trek, let's say, and the next day I said, I'd be like, I'm going to get into calls tomorrow. <laughs> and I would. <laughs> I was taping that. You cut off 30 seconds off the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been there. I, I have been there. It, it, the, the, I, I can tell you the tough part, one, one of the toughest situations that we dealt with is when I was news director at uh, WBBJ TV here in Jackson before I became a professor. And this was at the time that these quasi, but they were all tabloidish news magazines were appearing in the early evening or late afternoon on a lot of local stations, things like A Current Affair or uh, the one that we had at five o'clock in the afternoon leading into the uh, network news was the inimitable hard copy. <laughs> and, and it seemed as though hard copy would begin almost every day with a story about some stripper somewhere. I don't know what was so significant about that, but it seemed as though that's how they wanted to open every episode with a story of that ilk or something that was suggestive. And I, I, when I would see it come on in the newsroom, because everybody was out the door at five o'clock, the general manager was gone, the sales manager was gone, the salespeople were gone. At five o'clock in the afternoon, only the production people and the news staff. They were all that were left, and I knew the phones were going to start ringing. I never forget to get a ring one day from this lady, and she'd say, I don't know why y'all have that old hard copy on there, and then she starts railing about all of this, and I decided I'd have a little fun with her, and I said, well, ma'am, I said, I understand this. I said, what you need to do, and I'd, all, I'd tell them all this. I said, what you need to do is call back tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock and say everything you've said to me to Tommy Spain. He is the boss. He's the general manager of this station. And you tell him how you feel about hard copy. Mm. And I said, just, I said, un unleash it to him, just like you have to me, because he needs to hear that. <laughs> uh, I said, I'm, I, I, and I, I would play it up. I say, I'm just the news director. I don't put that show on the air. Uh, but I said, you tell Tommy Spain that and, 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 you know, just let him know what's on your heart about it. But I said, let me ask you something. I said, did you happen to watch One Life to Live this afternoon? And she said, oh, yes, I never missed that. And I said, well, how about the second, and I happened to be in the newsroom when it was on. I said, how about what happened during the second scene in there between that man and that woman? I said, that didn't bother you just a little bit? And she says, don't you go talking about my story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> We finally got, I'll tell you what, we finally got hard copy off the air 
because the staff just finally went in mass in a in a staff meeting and told the general manager look we're tired of taking the calls and 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 i said it's easy to say okay but at least they're watching but i said i think a lot of them are tuning out and i said this is not really the kind of and and a lot of people chimed in this is not really the kind of show we want to have on at five o'clock in the afternoon on this station and i said there are a lot of other choices that are available uh we don't need this one and so uh it 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 vanished off our station in 26 weeks that happened a few times at 44 too so yeah um (laughs) now probably our little last segment since you have such a diverse career that we're talking about and you know uh, I mentioned at the beginning, I watched a pretty recent one that you had uh, Room 222 and you had uh, mm-hmm. Route 66, and you said there are tributes to Michael Constantine and uh, Ed Asner, uh, which is the reason. Um, how did that show start? And then you mentioned something, you couldn't get the rights to like Mary Tyler Moore show, even if you wanted to show mm-hmm. it. So how do you get the segments for uh, TV classes? Uh, trying to make sure that they're cleared in public domain. And there, there are some series, in fact, there are many series, that because the, either the studio did not renew the copyrights on, it, which it, it's a 28-year period, and either the studio did not renew the copyrights on the scripts, or sometimes you would have writers that had such a volume of material that if they passed away and if they passed away before the the copyrights expired uh they they lapsed into public domain uh this is one of the things that happened with the movie it's a wonderful life back in the 80s and it's astounded me because frank capra was still alive right but but the movie the copyrights lapsed on it. And so for a period of more than a decade, It's a Wonderful Life was airing on cable access stations. It was airing on local stations multiple times during the holiday season, both the colorized and the conventional version of that movie. And the only reason that it went back into uh, the script is still uh, in public domain. But what happened is in 1994, NBC bought the rights, actually it was Republic Pictures, mm-hmm. bought the rights to the music from It's a Wonderful Life. And because of that, uh, it was going to become prohibitively expensive for a lot of the stations that have been running it almost ad infinitum. Uh, to pay the kind of royalties that it would be for the music. On so I was wondering show. about that because uh, yeah, that part I didn't know because I was like, yeah. how does something this public domain suddenly get back into Yeah, and that, that's what happened. And then NBC at that point bought the exclusive rights for 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been renewed since then, but they bought the rights for 20 years to It's a Wonderful Life to run a maximum of three times during the holiday season. And, and, but it was, it, it ended on local stations because of that very reason. Uh, and I, I can remember that the uh, public access station here, that the, our former public access station, not the one that I'm on now, but our former public access station, 
they were running It's a Wonderful Life even in June mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> because, you know, they had it and it was like that. But you've had you've had a number of the extremely older series, but there are some in the 60s. There are some things such as, I'm going to give you an example of this, the Andy Griffith show. Uh, you know, probably I will go on record of saying that I think, and I know the Lucy fans will hate me for this, but I believe is the more enduring show than I Love Lucy uh, as far as TV history is concerned. But the Andy Griffith show, uh, there are 18 episodes of that show that are in public domain because the scripts lapsed. Oh, okay. and, it's because and of the so, script. Because I was wondering about that. How does mm-hmm. that work? Because, and, uh, you know, you, you've seen it for years where you go to the video shop and it'll be the same episodes of Beverly Hillbillies or the Lucy show or Andy Griffith show Mm -hmm. and Bonanza, whatever that it's like. So it's always the script that went to public domain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then here, here's one that'll surprise you is that uh, there are 103 episodes of the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet that are in public domain. Now, now, that's enough. You could you could strip this for, you know, if you did it five days a week, you could go 20 weeks without uh, going to a rerun. But uh, what happened is when they went off the air, of course, the longest running situation comedy in television history. I don't count The Simpsons because it's animated. But <laughs> uh, as far as live action situation comedy, the longest running in television history, right. there were a little bit more than 420 episodes that were done. And when they came off the air, Ozzy said, that's just too many for stations to buy because there was a limit as to how much money they would pony up for the reruns. And so Ozzy looked at the the whole library that they had and he said, 420 is way too many. So he and David took about six months and they went through and selected the best 200 that they thought would be best to go into syndication. But apparently what happened is that they did not, you know, they held on to the rights to those, but they did not uh, renew the copyrights on all those other episodes that were out there. Now, some of them were sold to the Disney Channel. And when it first went on the air, Harriet came on and cut new wraparounds for I think the Disney the Disney Channel may have bought something like a hundred of them that uh, were not in the regular syndication run and Harriet came on and and did uh, some generic wraparounds to each one of the each one of the shows uh, but that left more than a hundred that are in public domain and so that's why you have a lot of these streaming channels. Mm-hmm that carry Ozzy and Harriet on a regular basis. But you can, you can pick up scattered ones here and there that have uh, the, the, the Lucy show, not I Love Lucy. Uh, we will probably never run I Love Lucy, but the Lucy show, the second series, has 43 episodes yeah. that are in public domain. Uh, which is another reason why you see it pop up on all of these streaming channels now because they're free. Well, let me uh, ask they, you this. Let me, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. Uh, uh, let me ask you this, though. Let's say you were showing Lucy's show. Obviously, they've been remastered and all pristine on DVD now mm-hmm. through CBS. So, are you allowed to show those versions that look all pristine, or do you have to run the faded, washed-out prints that typically yeah, are on public domain? Yeah, you have to run the lesser 
quality <laughs> copies of them. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and some of them are actually fine. Uh, you know, the the Ozzy and Harriet prints on their 103 episode collection. Now, there's some of them that are that are weak. Of course, I mean, they there are a few of them that are in color because they did the last two years in color. Hmm. But uh, you know, most of them are black and whites, but they, for the most part, are relatively good, particularly for black and whites. Uh, in, but they're not what we would all refer to as pristine. Uh, but you do on, on the Lucy, it, the Lucy show, it's not the same ones as you would get on a studio produced DVD set. Uh, they, they have usually, it's, it's usually probably what you would used to call with videotape a second or third generation uh, off of that. But, you know, it's, it's amazing what you can go through and actually find that is available in public domain now that uh, is, is astounding to me that, uh, that it's out there like that. But, you know, what, where we are and what we air, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we are a nonprofit cable access station that I'm on in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, there's, for a variety of reasons, uh, they do not sell commercial time on it because the station is owned by the public utility here in our community. So for that reason, they do not sell commercial time for it. Uh, they do have a, a uh, company, Via Media, that sells inserts and they, they sell commercial inserts in all of the cable networks, but not the local cable access channel. So uh, we don't profit in any way from anything that airs on Steve Beverly's TV classics because they've never sold a minute off. <laughs> I wish they could, but they, they, they can't where that's concerned. But, but I'll tell you, Mark, it, it's, it's been probably the most rewarding show that I have done in all of my 50 years of media because these shows bring back so many good memories for people. They, they really do. I get stopped in the grocery store or when I'm filling up my car for gas and holding my breath when the price is what it is. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I truly have had just such a rewarding thing of people who will just stop me and they'll say, uh, you know, it just brought back so many good memories to see Sky King or uh, to see a show that maybe they haven't seen in many years because it's not the kind of show that TV Land or even Me TV is going to run again. Right. Uh, and and for for that, you know, it's it's a baby boomer audience, but it 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 just is a throwback to the kind of things that we watch that made us feel good. And, and for me, that's been the greatest reward of, of doing this. And I've been doing it for 11 years now. We're about to do uh, on November 20th, be our 300th show. So how many do you do a year then, roughly? Uh, you know, we, we typically would do about 45 a year. But lately, since I've retired, I've started, what we would do is we would do a new show for Saturday nights here in Jackson. And then we would run a best of on Sunday nights, one of one from an earlier year. But now since I've retired, I've got a little more time on my hands. And so I've been doing uh, shows for both Saturday and Sunday nights uh, that are that are new shows. So this year, we will probably end up since we since we've been doing that, we'll probably end up having about 55 new new shows this year. 
Now, do uh, all those get on Stu's Roku channel? Because that's the only way I see them. So. Not every one, uh, primarily because I started with some that, that uh, go back to an earlier period. Uh, but you know, a lot of these will eventually show up on Roku, uh, but it not necessarily in the same order that I do them here locally. Uh, but what we do here is that, uh, also six times a year on holiday weekends, we do a marathon. And so we, the longest one that we have is on Thanksgiving. And so, uh, on Thanksgiving Eve, we start at six o'clock central time and we go all the way through monday morning after thanksgiving at 9 a.m hmm. and this year it's uh, uh i think it's 108 hours and so it's uh it has been verified as the longest uh marathon of any kind uh tell back in the days of telethons i think the longest one they ever had was 20 hours but it's the longest marathon that in West Tennessee television history. And, and so it's just a little small uh, notable that we have with that. But we're, we will start, we'll, we'll, what we do is we'll have five new editions that'll be every night at six o'clock during that. The rest of them will be uh, classic episodes from the past that we do because obviously I couldn't do enough to fill 108 hours. <laughs> I was wondering about that if, if you're doing like like uh, there's a station in San Francisco. I keep saying San Francisco because it's basically where I grew up in that area. Right. Um, called Channel 20. Uh, it's uh, Coffee TV 20, K-O-F-Y. And it was run by this guy named James Gabbard who's still around but I think he sold the station and I think he's been on the station since but he doesn't own it anymore. I don't remember. He used to run this show, and this is where I saw a lot of stuff uh, called the TV20 Time Machine, and that's where I started seeing older shows. Like I, the first time I saw Route 66 was on there because when I was a kid in the early 70s, it was like black and white. Other than I Love Lucy, maybe Bilko was verboten. You couldn't put on black and white anymore. Maybe yeah. Three Stooges, you know. So even shows like Gilligan's Island or I Dream of Jeannie that had a black and white season. I never saw the black and white seasons. You mentioned Andy Griffith's show. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I'd read about Andy Griffith's show being a really funny show with Don Knotts. And I go, I don't remember Don Knotts on the show because I only saw the color ones, you know, and he was <laughs> and on now, a couple of hey, those. Hey. But I mean, it's like, it wasn't like every week, like they acted like, I go, what happened to these? It wasn't until the eighties when Nick and Knight started showing these things. I go, Oh, okay. You know, yeah, yeah. Hey, 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 Mark, what you're saying about that, and now the irony of it all yeah. is that TV Land and uh, MeTV yeah. rarely ever run the color episodes. That's right. Because <laughs> there's so many people who just don't like the episodes that Don Knotts is not in, and particularly those episodes that Jack Burns was in that, that Andy just seems so ill at ease, almost to the point of being mean yeah. uh, in some of those episodes. And, and so the color episodes of the Andy Griffith show are, are I, I hate to say that they're a dinosaur, but as far as what you see on cable television or on digital TV now, right. uh, they, they almost don't exist. And, and I think one of the problems you've got now is TV land is, is, has played into the binge TV watcher right. because it's not like the old days where they would run maximum two episodes of a show in a row. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, back when TD Land first went on in the mid-1950s, they might run, say, two episodes of Petticoat Junction or two episodes of another show. But that was it. That was max. But now that we've gotten all into this binge watching, yeah. you think about there's there's about 153 black and white episodes of the Andy Griffith show. Well, now TV land is running eight episodes a day of Andy Griffith. And by the time you get through, that means 40 a week that they're running. And so you have gone through the black and white library in a month. Right. <laughs> and, and, and it's almost, I'm, I'm sensing that it is almost burning out people because there's now not that same sense of expectation for the upcoming episodes, because all of a sudden you say, well, I just saw that one three, four weeks ago. And it's really true. <laughs> it's really true. They, and, and so binge watching, I think, is, is really the philosophy behind programming to that, I think, is really hurting these shows that are classics in the long run, because, I mean, eight episodes a day? You know, I mean, Andy's fans are extraordinarily loyal, but at some point in time, you just, you begin to see them all too quickly. Right, right. And I, I can name a show that I can say from personal experience is not one you need to binge watch, is Rowan and Martin's Laugh Dance. <laughs> um, now, I watched, you know, the later episodes when they were new as a kid, yeah. and then they had a brief revival, was it in the 90s or the 80s? I don't remember. It was brief. Yeah, they it it was uh they did it they they cut them into half hours. Yeah, and yeah. they had a they had a short syndication run, and then they went to uh, uh Nick at Night originally. Yeah. And they didn't do all the seasons, if I remember correctly, which right. kind of right. disappointed me because even though people say, oh, the earlier ones with Goldie Hawn are better, you know, I want to remember the ones at the end with Willie Tyler and Lester and a few others. Yeah. They go, well, I want to see those again because I saw them as a kid. Anyway, so in watching them. They're great if you watch them once a week or maybe mm -hmm. a couple times, maybe twice a week or something. But to watch this, you know, because I was just binge watching them on DVD, it's just like, like six, seven episodes in a row. It's like they tell the same jokes every week. That's right. <laughs> and it's like I never realized how much repetition was on it, but they figured, yeah, people won't remember this from a week ago or a week has passed they might want to hear it again. And it's like, and you could say that about almost any show on binge watching. It's like, you know, the familiarity breeds contempt or whatever. You know, It's like, yeah. You know, uh, you know and, and <laughs> if you think about now, me TV in decades follows a more traditional pattern yeah. where at least on weekdays, you only see about two episodes. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you, you see two episodes of Andy, and there's one episode each of Gomer Pyle and Green Acres, uh, a couple episodes of Hogan's Heroes, and then they run one Perry Mason in the morning and one late at night. But it's not, uh, unless they do some kind of unusual marathon, it's not uh, tailored so much to binge watchers as TV land has become. I mean, the same thing is true. You could say for everybody loves Raymond because at the end of Andy, they go to everybody loves Raymond and there's about six episodes a night of that. Uh, and, and, you know, there were fewer episodes made of that than of, of Andy, even though it, it had one year longer on the air, but uh, you know, they were making a lot more episodes when uh, Andy's show was on, but uh 
but when you look at how it has all happened now, the, the binge watching target, I think if, if that continues, it's going to burn out some of these shows a lot more uh, than, than, you know, what it has. When it, well, I mean, I grew up in an era where syndication meant one episode a day. And that was it. I mean, you, you had, and if you missed it, okay, you wouldn't see it again. If it was leave it to beaver and, uh, and you saw it at four 30 in the afternoon, which is where, when I grew up, WJXT was running it five days a week in Jacksonville, Florida. And, and so if you missed an episode, it was going to be almost a year before you would see it again. Cause uh, you know, you're talking about 234 episodes of a show that almost took a year to go through five days a week, one episode at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Any show that ran at least a hundred episodes is going to be at least mm-hmm. three months, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it, I mean, you had to, and, and I'm talking about in an era before VCRs and, and before yeah. DVDs. And so, uh, you know, you didn't have an option uh, of being able to record it and watch it later if it was your favorite show, which Beaver was mine by a nose over Andy Griffith. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's just, that's the way it is now. I, you know, I say the same thing, too, about what Game Show Network has basically done with Family Feud, yeah. is that it's, for all intents and purposes, become the Family Feud Network And I mean, sometimes eight episodes a day of that. And I keep saying it to myself at some point in time. Well, obviously, they're still making money on it because they keep running it that often. But at some point in time, you got to ask who is going to sit there and watch that many shows at one time, 40 episodes a week. Uh, And, and, you know, it's beyond me, but there are people above my pay grade that are making those decisions. (laughs) Like way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the, the the only other thing I will say about it is I hate it when you know, and it happens all the time on Netflix and, they, and all these streaming stations. Instead of putting on one episode at a time, which they sometimes do, but people are so conditioned now they grab and complain about them. Why can't they put them all at once? So a lot of times they put them yeah. all at once, and then you got twenty episodes to watch all at once or something. It's like, you know, it's a little jarring to suddenly have that much material to watch at one swoop like that, you know, it's like, hmm. yeah, I, I I've said, well, I, here's an interesting thing, Mark, uh, toward the end of my time as a professor, uh, I had a student that interviewed me for the uh, campus magazine and he asked me an interesting question that I don't think I'd ever been asked before. And that is why, are these classic shows, why do they mean so much to people in your generation? And I said, I, I, I think I can really come up with the answer for that. And that is because when we were coming along, that was all we had. Uh, all right, you grew up in the San Francisco area where there were a couple of independent stations, but where I grew up before cable came along, I was in a town where the reception was so bad that we could only get one station around the clock relatively watchable. <laughs> and, and then at night, we might get an NBC station out of Jacksonville, Florida, when the signals were better in the evening. Uh, we might get that. But that's all we had. And we didn't have all of these 
opportunities and options, streaming services, cable <laughs> networks, digital networks. We didn't have all of this and, and the volume of original material that is being produced. And, and, and I said, in your generation, I am, I am going to be bold enough to say, and I'm not trying to say this like an old man that's sitting in a rocking chair in front of a hotel, <laughs> but I said, I'm venturing to say that your generation, when you get to be my age, that the shows you watch today are not going to mean anything to you because yeah. you've had so broad of a genre to choose from and they're, they're coming at you. The volume of material is coming at you so much faster that, that it's probably going to be easier to be bored by it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I really do. I really do believe that, that the shows that we consider the classics mean so much to the baby boomers because of the fact that that's all we had. We did not have this big bundle of choices that are out there now that, you know, who has the amount of time to watch all of these shows? They don't. Yeah. I know I don't. I mean, I used to think I'm not going to be an old curmudgeon and uh, I'll always try to watch new shows and everything. Well, I'm not as much a curmudgeon as maybe Stu kind of acts like <laughs> I hate this. I hate this show. But at the same time, I don't bother. I mean, it's like I got a, over to my <laughs> left over here. I got stacks of DVDs of old shows from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that eventually I will get to. And I enjoy them. So I'm like, why am I seeking out new stuff? I got a whole bunch of stuff to still watch. You know, yeah. and it's like, it'll probably take me the rest of my life. You know? <laughs> I'll probably never watch it a second time. I don't know. But Anyway, you know, you know. and I find myself I find myself turning on in the mornings and watching classic reruns TV, which yeah. is another streaming service that not a lot of people are familiar with. But, uh, you know, they're running some fun stuff. They only run a couple of episodes a day of the things that they do. And I, heaven knows I never thought that I would see Jim Neighbors talk show. Hmm. turn up again i thought probably those tapes were lost and gone forever well wow. all of a sudden I don't even know about, <laughs> about a month ago classic reruns tv started airing them hmm. and uh it it was interesting because when i i was a big fan of jim's and and i particularly loved his singing style mm -hmm. but when he when the talk show was on back in 1978 i was a cheerleader because i wanted it to succeed and they front loaded it with big guests the first week mm. and across the country, the first week's ratings were pretty good. In fact, mm. he was running second to Phil Donahue in the mornings in a lot of major markets. But as the show settled into a pattern mm. and you didn't have all these big blockbuster guests, but you had guests that were appearing on everybody else's shows, uh, the numbers began to drop. And by the time they got through about 13 weeks, they decided that that they do another 13 weeks and because they owed the stations the contract through uh, uh, 26 weeks. Mm -hmm. And then the show ended. Well, now that I'm watching these episodes in the afternoons now, I, I'm, I'm look at it and I think about Jim was so miscast <laughs> in the role of an interviewer. He, he was just, he, it's like sometimes he was so tentative about asking questions where somebody like a Mike Douglas could turn a conversation into something interesting. Right. But it's, it's almost like Jim was afraid to ask a question sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and the guest really almost took control of the show. 
a lot of times. It was uh, it was produced by Dinah's production staff because uh, he had had a couple of days to sub for Dinah, and they thought that based on that that he would be perfect to do a, a new talk show. But uh, it, it was interesting how I, in watching these shows, I get a different perspective from it than I did uh, 43 years ago when yeah. it was on the air. <laughs> Well, it's not always easy being a host. I mean, here we go. No, <laughs> but, no and um, I can tell you, I've been, yeah, I've there's been certain there a few people, times myself. <laughs> right. Then there's certain people that are better as actors, or in his case, actor, singer, comedian, than, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, like, remember Chevy Chase's show? I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, there's a good example. That was you know? painful. That yeah. was painful. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you, you, I may, you may, You may remember that at the pinnacle of his success on Saturday Night Live, there were already people speculating that he would be the guy who would take over for Johnny right. on The Tonight Show, which Johnny didn't like one bit. Of course. <laughs> uh, that kind of talk that, that started, and I remember Johnny was quoted one time as saying that he didn't think Chevy Chase could ad-lib his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> And and when he finally had that opportunity on Fox to do that late night talk show, it was proven that he couldn't ad lib his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it, the interesting thing are are things that were considered to be sure things that laid big eggs. <laughs> well, um, I kept you up. <laughs> I mean, it's ten o'clock here, but yeah, was it midnight there? <laughs> it, it's it's a little after midnight. Yeah. Okay. So I will let you go. I won't pull us through show marathon, <laughs> but um, <laughs> what I will end with, um, and I do this on every show, is just kind of give you a moment to promote yourself, anything, if, if you're doing any public appearances. I know a lot of people aren't because of the pandemic or uh, where they can see your shows or anything like that or how they can contact you if they have any questions. Sure. Uh well, if you'd like to watch Steve Beverly's TV classics as it airs every week, uh, for those of you, obviously, there's far more of you who don't live in Jackson, Tennessee, but uh, if you'd like to watch it online, uh, it's on Central Time from 7 to 10 every Saturday and Sunday night, and you can watch it at epluss.tv6.com. I'll spell it out for you, E P L U S. TV6, the numeral 6.com. Again, E P L U S TV6, and that's the numeral 6.com. And, you know, you can check in with us, and, and particularly when we do our marathon that'll start on Thanksgiving Eve at six o'clock Central Time, uh, check in and out on us during that time. And then if you would like to be able to see us 24 7, we have four shows a month that run in rotation. Uh, on Stu's show channel. So if you have a Roku set, uh, just go to your Roku account and type in Stu's show, S-T-U apostrophe S, S-H-O-W, type in Stu's show, and that'll give you the app, the Stu's show channel, and just tap on it. And when you do, there will be, it'll pop up and you'll see a, a, a slide that says, Steve Beverly's TV Classics. It's it's a Stu's show. I feel like an old-fashioned summer replacement show. The way it says Stu's show presents <laughs> Steve Beverly's TV Classics. You know, it feels like Jimmy Durante presents the Women Sisters. <laughs> but but, uh, but I'm I'm grateful to Stu for giving me the opportunity to let others be able to watch uh, 
really on demand 24 seven. We can't put more than four shows a month in there in the port because it eats up too much bandwidth otherwise. But uh, uh, that's how you can watch us any day of the week. Uh, we're there on the Stu Show app. And, uh, and I'm very grateful to Stu for that opportunity. But yeah, check us out. And uh, I, I really appreciate you having me on, Mark. Always fun to do these kinds of things. Very good. Yeah, and um, I'm grateful to, for Stu's show and Stu's show stack for uh, putting it on there too. Uh, because prior to you being on there, you'd talk about it. And I go, I'd like to see that. And occasionally <laughs> Stu would show like a little tiny clip or something, you know, but not the whole show. And now I can kind of sit back and, oh, okay, this is what you're talking about. It's very well yeah, produced. That's, so. that's us. I'm, 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 I'm somewhat like, of course, they, there's a lady here in town who sent me an email and said that you're just like Father Time. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, I, I really am somewhat like Robert Osborne used to be on Turner Classic Movies. I, I drop in and drop out about three to four minutes in between each show and talk a little about the history of it, the trivia, and also what happened to the performers, why it was canceled, things like that. And, uh, and so maybe try to tell some things that you might not know about the show. So that's what my role is in it. I'm, I'm pretty much just a, a bookend between each of the shows. And uh, I, I just hope if you watch that you'll be entertained and remember some great things from the past. Yep. And I am. And I enjoy it very much. Well, I want to thank you, Steve Beverly, for being my special guest today. And Hey, if you want to come back sometime, we might just chit chat about just old TV shows. Uh, That'll be fun. All right. Love to do it. Thank you very much. And again, this is Mark Arnold for another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Steve Beverly, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 138 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of the Characters, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you, and good night. Just